If we're not doing mission, something is fundamentally wrong with our understanding of who Jesus is. Jesus said that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What does God's mission look like here? Are you on mission with God here? What does it look like here? What does God's mission look like here? Or here? Are you on mission with God here? Join the mission of God. Well, mix-ups, God is sovereign. Your video was talking Trust the Lord with those things. If you've been reading through Genesis, you trust the Lord with his plan too because when you see the evil that is perpetrated by some of the heroes of the faith and God, people God used, it's amazing to see that he's on a mission. And he's been on a mission from the beginning, not just in the New Testament, from the Old Testament, on a mission to rescue people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And he's still on that mission, and we have the privilege to be on that mission as well. And we want to make sure all of us are on that mission. So one of the ways we do that, help equip our children up through the fifth grade. If you're here, if you'd like to... Go back to your classes. You can do that now. <clears throat> and if the rest of you would grab your copy of God's Word and turn to Acts chapter 7. I really encourage you to, uh, um, every, every time we get together, is to make sure you have a copy of God's Word in front of you. If you do not, while the kids are making their way out, we have bookshelves that have uh, some Bibles on them that you can use. If you have it on your phone, your iPad, whatever, um, I want to see everybody have a copy of God's Word. We are going to cover a vast amount of verses this morning. And it's important that you're able to read along and um, be a Berean and check me out, make sure I'm not leading you astray, but examine the Scriptures as we look through them. Technical difficulty, okay. Okay. Lots of technical difficulty. Try yellow. There we go. Is that better? I was fine. <laughs> I got to be careful about saying that I really don't need this because every time I say that, Dirk turns me off. Um, uh, I probably don't need it for you to hear me, but it's nice to be able to record uh, these for people who listen to it or aren't here. A lot of you all take advantage of that. Not only people here, but people in other churches and people around the country actually I don't know why, but they listen to my sermons. Um, I, but they do. So I'm thankful for that, and we want to make sure we continue to provide that for those who do listen. Uh, but we are in this series in the book of Acts and um, about the mission of God. And this, this morning, uh, now don't laugh when I tell you this, we're going to cover chapter 7, verses 1 through 53. I knew somebody's going to laugh. <coughs> um, they know me too well often. Uh, I won't cover a whole lot of verses, and the, but it dictates that. I'll try to, to, to preach what the text dictates and for us to keep the flow of the text going. Um, but the title of this message, the message this morning is Getting the Gospel Right. Getting the Gospel Right. Let's pray and ask God to uh, open our hearts and minds to his word. Lord, we uh, come to you again um, 
not as formality, Lord, but as reality, the reality that we cannot understand your word without you. We can't understand it intellectually. We can't take it into our lives and apply it in our lives. We can't know you more. We can't be used by you unless you move in us. So, Lord, we're trusting you to do that. We submit ourselves to you, to your word, to the Holy Spirit as he enlightens our minds and brings conviction where there needs to be conviction, maybe conversion where there needs to be conversion, encouragement where people need encouragement. Lord, we trust you with that now. In the name of Jesus, we do pray. Amen. Well, let me ask you a question this morning. What if you were given the responsibility to prescribe the treatment of cancer patients? It's a pretty large responsibility, isn't it? That's a lot of responsibility. A lot of you, in fact, probably most people in here in some ways have been affected by cancer. Whether it's you or someone else, you know the seriousness of can cancer. And to give, be given the responsibility of prescribing the treatment for cancer patients is serious business. Uh, now, now, these people that you'd be prescribing this to uh, would be depending on you to get it right. I mean, they're not trained in the medical field. I'm just pretending like we all are. We all are oncologists. Is that right? Is that the right ecology? I got it right. Good. All right. So we're all oncologists. We've all been trained this. We're experts in treating for cancer. Because if you got it wrong, that cancer would continue to spread and spread and spread, ultimately leading to the death of your patient. Wouldn't you want to make sure you got it right? Now, I know some oncologists, and I know they study hard, and they're always with research and stuff of cancer, and they're doing the very best they can and making sure that the, as the best they can, they get it right. They get the treatment plan right because it's often the difference between life and death isn't it it's serious business to prescribe treatment for cancer patients and the reality is that no one that i know here this morning has been given that responsibility no one here is an oncologist i know of nobody's been given the responsibility of prescribing treatment for cancer patients however everyone in this room who is in Christ, meaning they have rejected their self-righteousness, rejected their own works to make themselves right with God, and have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and their, his payment for sin. Everyone who is in Christ here this morning has been given an even greater responsibility than pres prescribing treatment for cancer patients. If Christ lives in you, you have been given the privilege and responsibility to tell people about the remedy for sin. See, cancer is, a, um, it, it, it's just a result of sin. Now, I'm not saying that people who have cancer, it's because of their sin. But it's a result of sin in our world. And, but sin is the issue. And even more so, not only the remedy for their sin, that the effects that sin has on our bodies, but even more so in our standing before God. Now, that's serious business. And everyone in here has been given that ministry, that ministry to take the gospel to the world, all of us. Now, it, and it's not just a matter of life and death. It's the, a matter of eternal life and eternal death. Greater consequences even than cancer has. Let me ask you this question. If that's our responsibility, and it is, 
wouldn't we want to get it right? It's serious business to give the wrong prescription for sin. And yet that happens all over our world today. People giving the wrong prescription for sin. And people listening to those who give the wrong prescription for sin. They don't give the gospel. And the eternal consequences that come with that. We've got to get it right. You see, people need to be rescued from the penalty of their sin. And we have the answer for how that can happen. The answer is the gospel. And we're called to take it to this world. You find in 2 Corinthians 5.20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. I mean, those who speak for Christ. As though God were making his appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. That's our responsibility, to beg others to be reconciled to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only are we called to present the gospel to those without Christ, but we're also called to defend the gospel against those who get the gospel wrong. Now, people sometimes get upset. Well, why would you name someone's name? You know, if they're getting the gospel wrong, if there's a doctor who's killing people, would you send it to him? Don't go to Dr. Brown. Oh, don't say his name. Are you kidding me? If he's killing people, don't send them to Dr. Brown. And people who get the gospel wrong, I'm not talking about different aspects of church and preferences and some of the things we disagree on that aren't the difference between hell and heaven. I'm talking about the difference between hell and heaven. That kind of thing. And it's okay to say their name, and we should. And we also ought to be able to defend the gospel. And the scripture clearly teaches that. In Jude 3, there's some other places too, but Jude 3 this morning, we look here, it says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which is once for all handed down to the saints. You see, the gospel has never changed. It's always been the same. And not only in Jude's day, but in the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3, the gospel is presented. There's only been one gospel. It's always been Christianity, Christianity, because Christ was promised in Genesis 3.15. And it's never changed. And we're to earnestly contend for the gospel which has been handed down through the saints. To contend for it. We have to be able to defend it. We have to understand we have to be able to say, that's right and that's wrong when we hear someone present the gospel or what they say is the gospel. Why? Why is it so important? Because it's the difference between heaven and hell. It's the difference between eternal life and eternal death. That's important. And we've all been given that responsibility, all been given that ministry. Getting the gospel right is essential if we're going to fulfill the mission of the church. We're talking about the mission of the church. We're talking about being on mission for God. And if we want to fulfill that mission which God has given us, obviously by the power of the Holy Spirit in us, we've got to make sure we get the gospel right. Because that's the foundation of everything. And our passage this morning in Acts 7 is about getting the gospel right. Now, last time we were together in Acts, last week Jared preached and did a great job. The king is coming, so love people. If you missed that, I encourage you to listen to that on our, our website. Um, but the last time we were together in Acts, we looked at Acts 6, 5 through 15 and looked at Stephen and the attributes of the one called by God. If you remember that, if not, that's what we did. All right. Uh, Stephen was talking, taking the gospel to the Hellenistic Jews. So what in the world does that mean? To the Greek speaking Jews who were not native to the land of Israel. They had moved away. Their ancestors moved away. They had come back, but they were Greek speaking Jews. And he was taking the gospel, going to the synagogues and speaking to them there about the gospel. And... In verse 8, back in chapter 6, if you want to look there with me, it says they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. 
they didn't like being defeated in discussing these things of God. And if, as you, we mentioned last time, most likely, for many reasons, but most likely, Saul, who became the Apostle Paul, was in one of those synagogues that he was having a formal debate kind of about the gospel and about what the Jews believed at the time. Um, and and I, I believe that with all my heart that Saul was there, and I think there's more evidence we can see in Saul's conversion. But just think about this. How did Luke get the inside information? How did he get it? He knew Paul, and we know that for later on in Acts. We know that he knew Paul. And I believe it's because Saul, who became Paul, was here, and he gave him this account of what happened. He gave him the rundown, and we got, God will use it in his life uh, later. But Paul was also a Hellenistic Jew, so... He, he is take Stephen's taken the gospel. He's uh, the people are not liking that they're unable to cope with his wisdom So they stirred up things by saying that Stephen was saying things that he should not be saying uh, Look with me beginning there in Acts chapter 6 verse 11 I, I'm going back here. So we'll make sure we tie this in well verse 11 says then they secretly Induced men to say we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God and then verse 12 And they stirred up people the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. Now notice what Stephen is accused of in verse 11. He's speaking blasphemous words against Moses and against God. What does that mean? What does it mean he was speaking blasphemous words against Moses and against God? Now, we would even agree, even though we're not, I don't know if anybody's Jewish in here, I don't think so, but we would even agree those are two pretty important people, God and Moses. And that was serious stuff to speak blasphemous things against them. That's what he's being accused of. But whatever it means, it got him drug in front of the Sanhedrin, which is the council, it may say in your translation, and the high priest. And verses 13 and 14 explain what it meant to speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Look at verse 13 with me. They put forward false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against the holy place and the law now notice in verse 13 they say stephen spoke against the holy place and the law now hold on didn't we didn't they just say earlier that he spoke against god and moses and now they're saying that he's speaking against the holy place and the law it's not a contradiction the two accusations in verse 13 are actually synonymous with the two accusations in verse 11 it's helping us understand what it means to speak against god and moses so he says now in verse 13, they speak against the holy place and the law. To speak against the holy place, the temple, was to speak against God. Now I wonder why that would be. Why if someone spoke against the temple, was it to speak against God? Now think about this. Maybe you, you, you not, don't have a church background. Uh, maybe you haven't studied the, much of the Old Testament. I encourage you to do that because it helps you understand the New Testament even to a greater degree. Um, it gives it much more meaning when you understand the Old Testament. But the temple... Uh, included this place called the holy place and the holy of holies and only once a year could the high priest go in to the holy of holies which was where the presence of god was in a sense all right so to speak against the temple was to speak against god and his presence so anyone who speaks against the temple that would be considered blasphemous you see so to speak against god now he's saying he speaks against the the, the, the temple all right so we see those are synonymous all right, and when Jesus died on the cross, the curtain in the temple, maybe you remember this, was torn from bottom to top, right? No, T 
top to bottom so it could only be explained by God because a man could never reach up there high enough or jump high enough to rip it. It was too tall. All right, so from top to bottom, signifying now that the old covenant was no longer enacted, but the new covenant had now come. And people could come because of Jesus into a right relationship with God, into his very presence. They couldn't do that under the old covenant. It would ultimately lead to that, but they couldn't do that under the old covenant. That was what it, it signified. Um, so this is what Stephen would have been teaching, and the Jews would consider that blasphemous, to say that anyone could enter except the high priest once a year into the very presence of God. Yeah, he's saying now the temple is obsolete because Jesus has called people to be the temple of God, that he would dwell in, not in a physical building. Blasphemous. Now, verse 13 also says he spoke against the law, whereas verse 11 says he spoke against Moses. This is a little easier connection, but they're both pretty easy when you think about it. This is because the law was given to who? Moses. The Jews believed that it was through keeping the law given to Moses that they would be made right with God. That's what they believe. If we can just keep these, and you could just say the Ten Commandments, which we know are impossible to keep. If you're lusted after somebody, you've already broken it. And my guess is we've lusted, and we've, if we're lusted after our neighbors, name it, or envied our neighbor for this, we've broken it. And we can just go down the line, and we've broken the Ten Commandments. But there's not just the Ten Commandments, there's 613 other laws. We can't even remember the 613, let alone keep them. Impossible. And yet, that's what they believed. If they could keep all of Moses, the law of Moses, they'd be made right with God. Jesus and Stephen, following, his, following Jesus' teaching, taught that a person is made right with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, not by the keeping of the law. And this is what Stephen was teaching. So he was what? Speaking against the law of Moses. It is trusting Jesus as Savior that persons made right with God. Stephen proclaimed that, guaranteed, over and over again. And obviously, verse 14 expands on both Stephen's offenses. Look at verse 14. For we have heard him say, this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place, speaking of the temple, and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And if you were a good Jewish person, you would say that too. No way. The Jewish leaders felt that Stephen spoke against the temple and the law, and this angered them. Understanding this is essential to following Stephen's response in chapter 7. Who, who, no, I, won't say, I don't want to raise your, your hand, but if you've ever read chapter 7 of Acts, you're like, what in the world is he doing? He's just showing off how much he knows? I mean, there's a lot here, and we're going to see it. He basically recites almost like the whole Old Testament summarizes it all in verses 1 through 53 of chapter 7. There's a lot there. But there's a purpose why he says what he does and why he brings up certain parts of the Old Testament here in chapter 7. And the purpose is, and we can't forget this, is he has been accused of speaking against God slash the temple and Moses slash the law, of blaspheming those things. So he's responding to those accusations. Now when you go read, which we will this morning, Acts chapter 7, verses 1 through 53, maybe you'll be like, oh, oh, now I see why he's saying what he did. This is not here for, for fun, to, to make us who, preachers who preach long feel good too because it's a long sermon. 
It's actually the longest sermon in Acts. Um, it's not really not that long, and there may be a more. This is what God wanted us to have, all right? But there's a purpose in this. See, he's actually going to show that it's not him who's blasting the temple and the law, but it's the Jewish nation who is blasting the temple and the law. He's going to turn the table on these guys and make it point back at them. The things they were accusing him of, they were actually guilty of, not him. All right? Well, we've got a lot of text to cover this morning, as you, as you know. And you're thinking, when's he going to get going? All right? So I want to make sure we, we read through the whole text because it's inerrant. It's the word of God. And it has the power through the Holy Spirit to bring about change in the lives of people. My words are not inerrant. They're not. I get it wrong sometimes. But God's word is never wrong. You see that all scripture is inspired by God. Even chapter 7, verses 1 through 53. Maybe you read it before. You're thinking, man, if anything is not inspired, that's got to be it. That's a long sermon. It's inspired by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training, righteousness. The man of God may be fully equipped for every good work. Chapter 7 of Acts is that. It falls in that category. So we're going to read it. And as I read, I'm going to stop periodically and make some comments to help explain what Stephen is doing with the information he presents. Um, most likely from here on out, there'll be more of God's inerrant word than my errant word. And all right, so here we go. We'll begin here in chapter one, um, verse um, ch chapter seven, verse one. We're, we're going to read beginning in chapter one, verse one. We'll, we'll eventually get out of here this morning. No, chapter seven, verse one. All right. The high priest said, "Are these things so?" And he said, "Hear me, brethren and fathers." This is speaking of Stephen saying this. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him moved to this country in which you are now living. But he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. And yet even when he had, had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke to this effect, that his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land and that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And whatever nation to which they would be in bondage, I myself would judge, said God. And after that, they will come out and serve me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac came to the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. Now, remember, they accused Stephen of speaking against the temple of speaking against God. And where was the temple located? In Jerusalem, in the promised land, in the nation of Israel, in Judea. We can just whittle this down, use as many terms we can to tell you it's, it's in the nation of Israel. And from where did God call the father of the Jewish nation, Abraham? Was it from Jerusalem? No, was it from Judea? Was it from in the country that became the promised land? No. In Mesopotamia, the land of the Chaldeans, a Gentile nation full of pagans. Now, I want you to follow this. That's where he called the father of the Jewish nation. He didn't come. And we also know that Jerusalem used to be called Salem. And we know that when we find out about Melchizedek, which we find out about later, okay? But... Um, we know that it used to be called Salem. He didn't call him from Salem. He called him from a pagan nation, from Gentiles, 
the great workings of God with the Jews began outside of the nation of Israel, Jerusalem. Therefore, it began outside of the temple. This is important. Yet to the Jews, Jerusalem and the temple were everything. That was everything. If we're going to talk about God, we have to talk about the temple. And he's presenting here, it's not about the temple. It didn't start with the temple. It started in a pagan nation with a pagan man who was a moon worshiper, if you go and study Abraham, who hated the things of God, and God called him to be the father of the Jewish nation. So you want to hold up the temple. Well, let's keep reading verse 9. Now look at verse 9 here that says, The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt, yet God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all his household. Verse 11. Now a famine came over all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction with it, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family was disclosed, disclosed to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent word and invited Jacob, his father, and all his relatives to come here to him, 75 persons in all. Let me just say this. In the providence of God this week, who have been we reading about in Genesis? Joseph. And here we are about Joseph. And maybe if you've been reading that, you get the bigger picture of what's going on here, okay? Verse 15. And Jacob went down to Egypt, who was Joseph's father, and there he and our fathers died. From there they were removed to Shechem and laid in the tomb which Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. But as the, as the time of the promises was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose another king of Egypt who, didn't, who knew nothing about Joseph. It was he who took shrewd advantage of our race and mistreated our fathers so they would expose their infants and they would not survive. Stephen, in these verses, once again shows that the Lord worked with the patriarchs outside of the Holy Land, outside of the nation of Israel, outside of Judea, outside of Jerusalem, and therefore the temple. The patriarchs were even buried. Listen to this. If you're Jewish, you may walk out right now. All right? They were buried in Samaria. Ooh. Of all places, that was like the biggest cuss word for a Jew. They were half-breeds. They had rejected the God of Israel as far as they're concerned. Samaritans? That's when you go and you, you read in, in the Gospels about the Good Samaritan. Who's heard of the Good Samaritan? Right? It's not the Jewish guys that come along and help. It's the Samaritan. Oh, not the Samaritan of anybody. Not the Samaritan. He's the guy who helped them out. You've got to be kidding me. And here is, they're buried in Samaria. The patriarchs, meaning the, 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 the 12 sons of Jacob, of the, the 12 tribes, the fathers of the Jewish nation. Also notice that the patriarchs initially rejected God's way of salvation through Joseph, their brother. Uh, I was just re reading, that, reading that again this week. It's just so refreshing to read the story of Joseph. Joseph was God's way to deliver the nation of Israel, and yet they rejected him. See, a lot of people, and I, I wrote this in my little commentary this week on, in reflections on our um, abide reading, a lot of people think that Joseph is arrogant. If you can show me one passage of Scripture that says that, I'll be with you. You never see Joseph condemned for sharing his dream. God was using Joseph to deliver his brothers, and they wouldn't listen. Never do you see Joseph's arrogant. 
You never see that said anywhere. He's actually being used by God. And often when people are being used by God, people accuse him of being arrogant. And that's what happened there. This is a little side note there about Joseph, okay? I like Joseph. He's just being used by God. And he was, their way of, he was their way of salvation given by God. Yet they threw him into a pit and left him for dead, and they sold him to slavery. They forgot about him and act as if he were dead. And in their minds, he was dead. And they convinced their father he was dead. Then God, listen to this, God raised him up again to use him to bring about salvation for the nation of Israel. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar? Sound about anybody else you might know called Jesus? Who was rejected by the nation of Israel, who was killed by the nation of Israel, the tribes of Israel, and was put into a grave, a pit. And they thought he was dead, and he was dead, really, a little bit different than Joseph. He really was dead, and yet God raised him up again so that he might provide forgiveness to all who would believe, not just the nation of Israel, but the nation of Israel. They'd be forgiven of their sin. And here, Stephen is going back and saying, you know Joseph. And he's insinuating, he didn't get to this point yet, he's insinuating, you treated Jesus just like you did Joseph. It was a precursor to the one, the promised one, who was the ultimate fulfillment and the ultimate means of God's salvation. So let me ask this question. Who was actually speaking against God? Was it Stephen? Or was it the nation of Israel led by the high priest in the Sanhedrin? Look at verse 20 with me. We'll read a little while longer here. It was at this time that Moses was born, and he was lovely in the sight of God, and he was nurtured three months in the, his father's home. So we've gone from Joseph now to Moses. And after he had been set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and matured him as her own son. Moses was educated in all the learnings of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. But he, when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the son of Israel. And when he saw one of them being mistreated or, or treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting deliverance through him, but they did not understand. On the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together, and he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge of us? You do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? At this remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning thorn bush. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight, and as he approached to look more closely, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look. But the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt and have heard their groans, and I have come down to rescue them. Come now, and I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they disowned, saying, who made you a ruler and judge? Is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God raised up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers and he received living oracles to pass on to you. Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. 
saying to Aaron, Making for us, make for us gods who will go before us. For this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we did not know what happened to him. At that time, they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the hosts of heaven, as is written in the book of prophets. It was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices for 40 years in the wilderness, was it, O house of Israel? You also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of, God, of the god Rampha, the images which you made to worship. I also remove you from Babylon, or you beyond Babylon. Well, there's a lot there, huh? You're thinking, how in the world are we going to get through all that? It's a lot. Remember what they accused Stephen of. Keep, you always want to keep that in mind. What is Stephen doing here? He's not just reciting a bunch of stuff. There's a purpose behind every word that he says as he defends the faith, as he gets the gospel right. They also accused him of speaking against Moses slash the law. Yet it was the nation of Israel that continued rejected God's chosen means of salvation through Moses. Look back at verse 35 there with me. This is a summary. Um, this Moses whom they disowned, saying, they disowned Moses. All right? And then in verse 39, our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him, and their hearts turned back to Egypt. They continually rejected the one that God had raised up to bring about salvation for the nation of Israel. They rejected him. Is there a pattern here? You see this? They're rejecting the one that God raises up. They also rejected the law given to them through Moses. What? What I mean they rejected the law? You just told us that they thought the law was everything, that if they kept all 613 of the laws, they'd be made right with God. They didn't reject the law. Oh, yes, they did. And here's how. What is the purpose of the law? Don't, for, don't miss this. What is the purpose of the law? Sometimes people say, what's the purpose of the Ten Commandments? And we fight so hard for the Ten Commandments. I have nothing, I don't, and I'm not, not upset with people who fight against the Ten Commandments being posted. But the Ten Commandments are not the issue, especially when you misunderstand them. Often you'll ask people who grew up in church, what's the purpose of the Ten Commandments? And this is the answer you'll get. It's what you keep to go to heaven. Is that right? No, not, if you go here, you're not going to hear that. <laughs> All right? But often that's what people the answer. It's what you keep to go to heaven. It's not what you keep to go to heaven because you can't keep it. And that's the whole issue. So what is the purpose of the law? I'll just give you a couple of verses from the New Testament that speak about the purpose of the law. Because, this is, verse, this is Romans 3.20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And then Galatians 3.24, therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so we may be justified by faith. The purpose of the law is to show us our sin. We can't meet God's standard, which is perfection. We can't do it. That's the purpose of the law, to show us we're inadequate, we're sinful, we're in rebellion to God, and we need a Savior. The purpose of the law is to show us our sin and need for a Savior. That's the purpose of the law. It's always been the purpose of the law. It was the purpose of the law when it was given, to show them their sin and need for a Savior. And when God's given the law, they're showing themselves so sinful, they're building other alt altars to other gods. And it comes back down, and they've already broke the first Ten Commandments before we even got started. And you'd hope they would see that, but they don't somehow. Not, not all, some of them do, but most of them don't. They miss it. They miss the purpose of the law. So they're there, they re, therefore, they rejected the law. The very thing they prided themselves in keeping, they rejected. Instead of allowing the law to serve its purpose, they ultimately reject it and redefine it so they can keep it. 
You get that? They redefine the law. They make it a surface issue. Oh, we're just going to, they've had this whole thing, the oral laws and the Mishnah and the Talmud. You can go read those books if you want to. It's got some of those goofy things you've ever seen in your life. You can't, you, know, you, can't stir, you can't stir the soup, all right, all right, like this. But if you go back and forth, it's not stirring on the Sabbath. How about that? I mean, it's just goofy stuff. I didn't break the law. And that stirring the soup wouldn't break the law anyway, all right? But, I mean, just come up with the crazy stuff so they can keep the law. And Jesus comes on the scene in Matthew 5 and says, you heard that it was said. And he goes, here's what you've heard said. But I say, let me explain to you what you should have understood about the law the whole time. If you've lusted after someone in your heart, you've committed adultery already. If you said in anger, I hate this person, you've committed murder. Anybody guilty already? I am. We all are. They were. And they missed the purpose, and they rejected the law. Once again, the Jewish nation had rejected God's way of salvation, Moses and the law, because it did, doing its job, it would point them to the Savior. So who's actually speaking against Moses? Who's actually speaking against the law? Is it Stephen? Nope. It's these people right here, following in the footsteps of their forefathers. Now look at verse 44. We're already at verse 44. We're flying, all right? Our fathers had the tabernacle testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. And having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it in with Joshua upon dispossessing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? What is not my, what, what, was it not my hand which made all these things? You see, the tabernacle was given to them to ultimately point to Jesus. And then when they got to the promised land... David wanted to build the temple, but ultimately it was Solomon who built the temple, which was a bigger tabernacle. Then when they got into the land, and they built the temple, they began worshiping the temple instead of the God who it pointed to. See, the temple was everything, not really because it was about God, because it was about their God. Not the God who had created them, but the God that they had fashioned in their own mind. God himself had said in his word that he would not be contained by anything or anyone. He quoted the scripture. Stephen quotes the scripture that they know so well. He says, God says he's not contained by anything or anyone. Why? Because he created everyone. He contains all things. He sustains all things. He can't be contained by a building. If he could, what kind of God would that be? Not one that we would be worshiping today, for sure. So who is actually speaking against God in the temple? Is it Stephen? Or is it the Jewish nation following in the footsteps of their father, the fathers the whole time? Now look at verse 51 as Stephen summarizes his defense of the truth. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. I love Stephen. He just gets straight to the point, doesn't he? 
History shows the majority of the Jewish nation has rejected God's way of salvation. Here it says, always resisting the Holy Spirit. And, and what he's referring to is all the times and the ways that God reached out to you, even in your sin, nation of Israel, and gave you someone and something to point to the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone he gave, you rejected. You're always resisting the Holy Spirit. That's the context of that verse. You're resisting all those things and ways that God has shown you how to be made right with him. And now they had killed the very one whom God had promised that would save them from the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin. The one that everything else pointed to, they had now killed him. They had accused Stephen of blasphemy or speaking against God and Moses, the temple, and the law. And Stephen now shows it was actually they who were blaspheming God, the temple, and Moses, and the law. The very things that they accused him of, they were guilty of. They had not gotten it right. They got the gospel all wrong. All wrong. Now here's my question to you this morning. Are you getting the gospel right? Am I getting the gospel right? Is it about what you've done? Or is it about what he's done for you? There's a big difference. Is it about earning favor with God or being given favor with God? There's a big difference. There's a difference between heaven and hell. Make no mistake that what Jesus had done, has done to give you favor with God will change you from the inside out. It, it will change who you are from the inside out. Make no mistake about that. But what you do, listen to this. You've been here very long. You know exactly what I'm getting ready to say. What you do is not who you are. That's not who you are. But who you are has a tremendous impact on what you do. That's huge. That's the gospel. And who you are can only be done by God working in you. And how you receive his gift of salvation has nothing to do with what you have done. It, it doesn't even have anything to, to do with what you will do in the sense that, that he's not looking out there, you'll do some good things, I'll save you. No. You see, works are not the root of salvation, the fruit of salvation. The root of salvation is entrusting in Jesus Christ and him alone. If we add any work to the message of the gospel, then it is no gospel at all. The word gospel means good news. If we add any work to it to make ourselves right with God, it is no longer good news. It is bad news. It's the worst news on earth. It is a damning news is what it is. If we add any work to making ourselves right with God, that's not good news. You see, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. See my pen here today? I wore this on purpose. It says Jesus plus nothing. And my best, one of my best friends and one of my mentors, Bob Warren, who passed away coming up in about 10 days from now, last year, this is what he always said. Well, Bob and I, we disagreed on some different things, but we didn't disagree on this because this is essential. This is essential, not the pen, all right? This pen, but that truth that Jesus plus nothing is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It equals our right standing with God. Just think if there's one thing, just one thing that we could do 
And so I'll be honest. One thing that we could do, Jesus plus, I went to church a lot. Jesus plus, I know some scripture. Jesus plus baptism. Jesus plus, no, these things are all good, but they're essential for salvation. Listen, Jesus plus, just add your thing. If we could add one thing to that, when we got to heaven, we would do this. Jesus did his part, and God, aren't you glad I did my part? We'd be proud about it, wouldn't we? We'd be arrogant about it. I would. And if you're all honest, you would be too. It's not Jesus plus added in. It's Jesus plus nothing. He equals everything. So what is the gospel? You could go to a lot of verses, but I just want to give you this. This is, this is important, isn't it? We just agreed if this is what we're called to do. This is important. We need to know what it is. So look what it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Now I have made known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received and which you also stand, by which also you are saved from the penalty power and presence of sin, all right? If you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believe in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture. Why did Christ have to die for our sin? Because the wages of sin is death, and we've all sinned. Someone has to pay for the wages of sin, and Christ did that. He died for our sin to pay the penalty that we deserved, all right? And he was buried, showing that he was truly dead. He had truly been crucified for our sins. And that he was raised on the third day, according to Scripture. Why is that important? Because it shows, in a sense, that God had accepted the Son's gift for the payment of our sin. He had paid for our sin. The deal was done. And his conquering death was an approval, in a sense, by the Father. But it's also so we might have life forever. That's a great summary of the gospel. He died for our sins according to Scripture, and he was buried, and he was raised on the third day according to Scripture. Often when I present the gospel, and then when I say the gospel, the whole Bible is good news. The whole Bible is the gospel, okay? It's not just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's not just found in the New Testament. It's actually found in Genesis 3.15. Good news. That although we have sinned, that God's going to do something about it. There's good news all through it. It's the main message of the Bible, the gospel. Jesus is about is what the Bible is about. But often when I, I'm sitting just su summarizing it, I'll talk about what God's standard is. God is holy, and he calls us to worship him, to glorify him with our lives. That's God's standard. That's who he is. He deserves that. He created us. And yet the Bible says man's got a problem. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, what he demands from us. And we just said that the wages of sin is, help me, death, eternal separation from God forever. That's bad news. That's where we stand without Christ. He says glorify him. We don't do it. And we stand condemned. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love for us, sent Jesus. Isn't that good news? That's, that's God's provision. God's standard, man's problem, God's provision. He provides Jesus to die in our place that we might be made right with God, not through the keeping of the law. And our response is putting our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, putting our trust in what he has done on our behalf. And, and in order to do that, people all get caught up in the words repentance and faith, and they're, they're, they go hand in hand. You can't separate them. It's not two different acts. It's one act that happens all at once. You quit trusting in yourself, your own good works, 
You quit trusting in the things of the world. You quit trusting. You think what you, what's going to make you right, and it's going to make you popular. It's going to make you powerful. You quit trusting in that, and you turn, and you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no work involved there. There's no earning of salvation involved. It's a simple receiving of the gift that God gives us in Jesus Christ. And that's what makes us right with God. We can't get this wrong. We can't get this wrong. God has called us to take the message of reconciliation to the world, to implore people on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God through Jesus. We can't get this thing wrong. We can get other things wrong, but we can't get this wrong. We gotta, when we present it, we've got to be right. We must get the gospel right, right because there's a difference between eternal life and eternal death. Two aspects. One is we need to make sure we're presenting this true gospel to those who don't know. And when we hear a wrong gospel, we need to, we need to call it out. That's wrong. When talk, people talk about baptismal regeneration, that is wrong. That's the difference between heaven and hell. Oh, I got wet. I must be saved. Are you kidding me? Getting wet, being baptized is important, but it's not what saves us. And we should be baptized if we're saved. That's another extra sermon there, okay? We should be. But that doesn't know what saves us. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone, that's what saves us. So we hear things like that. That's wrong. Or Jesus plus anything. We need to call that out. That's wrong. Well, that's kind of mean, isn't it? Are you kidding me? That's not mean. That's the most loving thing that we can do for the person saying it, for the person hearing it. It's the difference between heaven and hell. Wouldn't you say that's important? Even more important than being an oncologist and getting it right in our treatment. Even more than that. Because one day God will reconcile all things to himself. And there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. And those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ will reign with him forever. That's great news. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the clarity of Stephen's argument. And Lord, I pray that we would not get the gospel wrong. We would get the gospel right. That we would not put up things just as a new Jewish nation did. We can do the same thing. Lord, we can, we can put up things that are not true about the gospel, and we can begin to make all these lists of things that we say are make us right with you, that forgive us of our sins, and Lord, I pray you keep us from that. And when we share the gospel, do not confuse the gospel, but make it clear. And Lord, we pray you would use our feeble efforts to share the greatest news ever known to man, that you were in Christ, reconcil reconciling the world to yourself. Lord, help us do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.